Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, we're trying something very new today. First Sunday of the month, we're starting a new series, but we're also starting something new with our kids. So if you are in first grade to sixth grade, we're going to dismiss you right now. But before you run off, this is how we're going to do this every week from here on out. If you're in first to sixth grade, right before the message, I will tell you it's time for children's ministry. Your children should be checked in already. So when you came in through the doors, you should have gotten the tag, which is a guardian slip, and also a slip with a tag for your child. And you should have been able to put that tag on your child. They should have it on them, and you should have the guardian slip. They're going to go through this exit to my left, your right, this exit only. They aren't to go out any other exit. You see your children's ministry leaders. Look at them. Say hi to them over there. Woohoo! And uh, so if you have a tag on and you're a child from grades 1 to 6, please go meet your children's ministry leaders over there in an orderly fashion. And if you don't have a tag, parents, you can go to the Welcome Center or the Children's Ministry check-in stations now and get a tag for your child and check them in. In case, again, this is very new. Thank you for your patience. Uh, This should be really good for you guys. Also, one final word before I get into the message today. Those guardian tags that you have, you must bring it to pick up your child. I know that the children's ministry people should know you by now and all of that stuff. But guess what? We don't live in the 50s and 60s anymore. We live in a day and age that's a little bit strange and weird, and people try to do bad things to good people. We want you, as an act of security, to take your tag. Please wait in line and get your child. And don't be like, come here, kid. Come here and have them run around the crowd. We're trying to keep things uh, safe we have a security team on, on staff that roams the halls and makes sure that everything is good. We want to make sure the package is delivered to the person who delivered the package. Okay? All right. Does that make sense? Yes, that, that should make sense in so many different ways. All right. Thank you all. Thanks for being here. We are starting a new series today here at North Main. We do about a month-long series. I work better doing series. Is that the plural of series, series? I do better. No, it's not. But still, I didn't graduate with a grammar degree. But so I, I do talks good sometimes. And so as we get into this new series, we're actually going to be talking about kindness in the wilderness. Our theme for this year is kindness. As you heard the song, we started last month with a series on kindness. We're actually going through the scripture and actually pulling out bits and pieces from Genesis all the way to Revelation as best we can of of stories and themes and narratives that reflect kindness, either the kindness of God or the kindness of other people. And so when I talk about this month, kindness in the wilderness, what I mean is the wilderness in the Old Testament. The book of Numbers and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, they're right near the very beginning of the Bible, 
are actually the stories of the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. Now, why were the Israelites wandering in the wilderness? Some of you may not be familiar with this story, but suffice it to say, let me give you the crash course in Israelite history as fast as I can to lead us up to today's message. The Israelites were a people who were chosen by God, and their oldest ancestor was a guy by the name of Abraham. Can you say Abraham? and say, not Lincoln. Okay, this is Abraham, not Abraham Lincoln, an older Abraham. He might have had a beard and a top hat, we don't know. Just kidding, he didn't. All right, so this Abraham had a, had a wife by the name of Sarah, and God came to Abraham when they were way out in more of the Asia Minor, Asia area, and said, Abraham, I want you to be my man. Okay, I'm paraphrasing, look it up. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three is the calling of Abraham. Read it for yourself. But Abraham is called by God to go into a land that God will show him. And God gives him this promise. I will make you into a great nation of peoples. What's really strange about this is that Abraham didn't have any kids at this point in time. And he was probably in his mid-70s. How many of you, I'm not gonna ask. How many, yeah. Okay, how many of you would claim to be near that range of age and think about now having a kid at that age? Okay, well, guess what? Abraham and Sarah didn't have a kid at that age. She was about 99 when she had her first child. So, anywho. So, God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your, your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky, the grains of sand on the earth. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and you will be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. So that's the beginning of the Israelite culture. Now flash forward several hundred years they are now so numerous because they've been in Egypt in the place called Goshen, which is just to the east of the Nile River. If they're doing archaeological digs today in that region and they're finding ancient Semitic people. What are Semitic people or Semites? They are our modern day version of Hebrew or Israelite people. They're actually uncovering huge areas of where countless Millions would have lived in that day and age. And so God then calls a guy by the name of Moses. How many of you know who I'm talking about when I say Moses? Okay. Moses is called by God, who is now in a region called Midian, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. He is tending his father's flocks. He sees a burning bush. The burning bush doesn't burn all the way down. He's like, I'm going to go check this out. And he brought a bag of marshmallows and chocolate <laughs> along with, I'm just kidding, that's not in there, you won't find it. But he did go closer to see this burning bush. And when he got closer, he realized it's not just a burning bush because there's a voice coming out of it talking to me. And it said, take off your sandals, the place where you stand is holy ground. And so Moses is like, yikes, What's going on here? And the voice says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's Abraham again. And so now Moses is so many descendants removed from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the same God is now calling Moses to go back to Egypt and set the Israelites free from captivity and bondage and slavery to the now corrupt Egyptian Pharaoh who was in power at the time. Moses goes, 
brings the people out after 10 plagues and all that jazz. Read it, it's in there. And they come across onto dry land through the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, depending on which version of Scripture you're reading. And now they're in this peninsula, if you look on a map today, called Sinai. Say Sinai. Sinai. Not cyanide, that's a poison. Sinai is a peninsula. It looks like an upside-down triangle, okay? And so they're in this region. They've left Israel or left Egypt, and now God has led them now to a mountain outside this area of Sinai called Mount Sinai, which is where God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. It gets really ugly from there because the people downstairs at the base of the mountain are like, uh, Moses has been gone for 40 days, and uh, I don't know if he's coming back. And we're not allowed to approach the mountain because we'll get struck down dead. So let's just build our own object of worship. And they talked to Moses' brother Aaron, and they said, hey, since he's not coming back, you can be our leader. Uh, we want to worship a God. And he's like, well, okay. Give me all your gold. And he had a pistol. And no, he didn't have a pistol because they didn't have firearms in those days. It was totally different. Are you guys tracking with me? Or is this kind of weird? All right. I'm just throwing little tidbits in there to see if you're tracking with me or not. He says, give me all your gold. So they gave him all the gold jewelry and different things like that. They melted it down and formed what we call today a golden calf. Have you ever heard of the term golden calf? If you've not been a part of the church, my guess is you've heard that. Oh, this is a golden calf. That means that it's so sacred that we're not going to touch it. We have those in the church today, but I, I'm not going to talk to you about those. Or I might. I'm just kidding. And so they build this calf. They start worshiping this calf. They're stripping off clothes and doing weird junk around this, this idol. And, and God is now still at the mountaintop with Moses. And, and he says, hey, you're, you know, your people down there are kind of getting all whacked out. And I'm getting pretty ticked off about it. And Moses goes down to see what's going on. It's a bad thing. And God issues the punishment. And in the midst of that punishment, he says, I think what I'm going to do is wipe all the Israelites out. You know, I, how, how can they betray me already at this point? Um, I, how many more miraculous signs do I need to do for these people? They're so stubborn. They're frustrating. But now they're worshiping a calf made of gold that is not even anything but a golden calf. It's, it can do nothing for them. So I'll wipe them out, Moses, and I'll make you and your descendants into a great nation. And Moses says, please don't do that. You know, I, it's going to make you look like a mockery to the rest of the nations. What will the Egyptians say after they see that you've miraculously led the Israelites out and then you wipe them out in the middle of the, the wilderness? And so God refrains from striking them dead in the region of Sinai and gives them another chance. Well, flash forward. There are about 11 months in the wilderness of Sinai. And they're now encroaching upon what would be the promised land, or we would look at a map today, it would be modern-day Israel, okay? There are several different pagan and tribal nations that live in that region, but God has said, I'm giving you this land. There are 12 spies that go into the land, and they come back. Two of the 12 say, yeah, we can take the land. I mean, they've got big people and all, but God is with us, and so we'll be able to do this. But there were 10 of the 12 who said, no, God's led us here to kill us. 
The people there are giants, and we look like grasshoppers to them. That's actually the terminology they used. And they will squish us just like grasshoppers. And uh, we're not going to be able to take it. As a matter of fact, we should incite violence against Moses and overthrow him and Aaron, and we should take leadership because this is ridiculous. And God gets frustrated again. He sends a plague, several people die, and then here we are. God says, I'm not going to strike them all dead. I will leave a remnant of them. But anybody of the age 20 or older are going to be forced to die in the wilderness. So for each day, the spies were in the land. They were in the land for 40 days. I'm going to add a year to their wilderness wanderings. So they stayed there for 40 years. And they wandered in the wilderness. And this is where we pick up the story. Because I think it's vitally important to understand that even amidst the punishment from God, he stays with them in those 40 years of wilderness wanderings. He doesn't leave them to their own devices. He continues to provide for them, to give them drink and food and protection in the wilderness. But there's a caveat. God's presence is in the form of a cloud by day and fire by night, or a pillar of fire by night, almost like a whirlwind of fire. And it would rest over this place called the tabernacle, which was a holy place of worship and sacrifice for the Israelite people. And so here's where we pick up the story today. But before we do, let me ask you about following. How many of you would consider yourselves to be followers? couple of you. How many of you consider yourselves to be leaders? Okay. In his book, None of These Diseases, S.I. McMillan writes about a woman who wanted to go to college. And you know, when when you apply to college, you usually have to give an essay of why you want to go to college and all that stuff. But her heart sank when she was writing her essay, when she read the question on the application that asked, are you a leader? And listen to, what, listen to what he writes. Being both honest and conscientious, she wrote, no. And she returned the application, expecting the worst. To her surprise, she received the letter from the college that said, Dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it's imperative that they have at least one follower. And let me give you this. You cannot lead unless you first learn to follow. Okay? We are all following something or someone. The question is, is that something or someone you're following leading you on a course that will ultimately lead in your demise, their demise, or just utter destruction altogether? You're all following somebody. We are all following somebody or something. Where is that somebody or something leading you to? Okay? And so we look now at Numbers 9, starting with verse 15. On the day the tabernacle was set up, remember the tabernacle, the holy place of worship and sacrifice? The cloud covered it. What cloud are we talking about? How did I tell you God appeared to them in the wilderness? As a cloud during the day, which rested over the tabernacle, and a pillar of fire over the tabernacle at night. But from evening until morning, 
The cloud over the tabernacle looked like a pillar of fire. This was the regular pattern. When, when you hear something that says this was the regular pattern, what do you think that means? This was normal, okay? It wasn't abnormal. It wasn't an anomaly. It wasn't like, oh, that's a cute cloud. And then the next day, oh, that's a cute cloud. Or, oh, that's a cool pillar of fire. No, this was the norm. This is what they came to expect. At night, the cloud that covered the tabernacle had the appearance of fire, and by day it was a cloud. Whenever, now listen to this, whenever the cloud lifted from over the sacred tent called the tabernacle, the people of Israel would break camp and follow it. How many people would follow? There were, according to some estimates, 1.5 million, upwards of 2 million people. Okay? Larger than some of our smaller cities around the state. All right, larger than some of our larger cities around the state. So the cloud would move. What would the people do? They'd break camp and follow. And wherever the cloud settled, the people of Israel would set up camp. The cloud rested in this specific place in the wilderness. They would set the tabernacle up, the priests would, underneath where this cloud was. And then they would set up camp. In this way, verse 18, they traveled and they camped at the Lord's command wherever he told them to go. Now, he didn't audibly tell them. It was they were visibly watching his movements and they would set up wherever he was. Then they remained at their camp as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. If the cloud remained over the tabernacle for a long time, the Israelites stayed and performed their duty to the Lord in that place. Sometimes the cloud would stay over the tabernacle for only a few days. So the people would stay for only a few days as the Lord commanded. And then at the Lord's command, they would break camp and then move on again. Sometimes the cloud stayed overnight and lifted the next morning. A million and a half to two million people for a half a day setting up camp, breaking camp, and moving. Was God just being mean and hateful? No, we're going to find out something about God in just a moment. Stayed overnight, lifted the next morning, but day or night when the cloud lifted, the people broke camp and moved on. I am not, when I'm woken up in the middle of the night, I have to get my bearings, right? I'm like, okay, let me see what's going on. If, they, if, the, if the pillar of fire moved at night, they immediately broke camp in the middle of the night and moved. It doesn't say that they did not grovel and complain, but it does say they broke camp and they moved, okay? Whether the cloud stayed above the tabernacle for two days, a month, a year, the people of Israel stayed in the camp and did not move on. But as soon as it lifted, they broke camp and moved on. So the camp, they camped and tra or traveled at the Lord's command, and they did whatever the Lord told them through Moses. Now, it didn't mean that they weren't frustrating, groveling, complaining, doing their own thing. I mean, you read the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy, there are countless times the people were just stubborn and hateful and disrespectful and at times disobedient to God, and God punished them in the wilderness, but he never departed from them. And here's the key point. Following God in obedience is the first step in understanding his loving kindness. So 
Let's look at the very nature of God in the cloud and the fire. The cloud and the fire, what did it do? The first thing it did is it reminded them of God's constant presence. Biblical scholar Raymond Brown says this. I want you to hear what he says. The cloud inspired their confidence in God. Despite their evident failings, he had promised to go with them, and here was a visible sign of his reliable presence. There were times when their hearts were willfully or carelessly turned away from him, but he did not remove the cloud. This is how it continued to be. I want you to hear this. God's continued presence with the Israelites wasn't only a reminder of his promise to be with them, but it was also a reminder that God was always aware of where they were and what they were doing. We don't like that, though. We are a private society that loves our independence, and we don't like people knowing every detail of our lives. And yet, there is one who knows every detail of our lives. But the sad reality is, it's not a fearful enough thing for us that the one who sees all and knows all sees everything that we do and knows everything that we do, and it's not a deterrent for some of us. We have lost a holy, reverent fear of God that would cause us to pause in the middle of a decision to do something even if nobody else saw us do it that wasn't quite up to stuff. To willfully throw caution to the wind and to do what we want to do out of our selfish desires ultimately sets us up for failure And we will be held account for that, if not in the immediate, sometime in the future. So God sees all and knows all. And we might think this is creepy, overbearing, intrusive, but that's only because we see it from the world's perspective and not from a heavenly perspective. We have been so conditioned by the world's standards that we believe that we have the right to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, without any consequences, and it's nobody else's business. But in the community of faith, it should be so very different, but sadly, it's not. Though we are free beings with the capacity and the capability of doing whatever our heart desires, we should not use our freedoms selfishly. I hear, <laughs> I hear people say, you can't make me do that. You're right. And God can't make you do anything. Did you know that? God doesn't grab you by the neck and force you to do anything everything he commands us to do. Even though what he desires for us to do is always good and for our good, he doesn't force us to do that. There are times he says, there are, well, not times, there are always consequences for doing those things we shouldn't do. And those things we shouldn't do are dictated by God's commands and teachings. And he also dictates and commands things that we should do. Did you know that? Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. We talked a little bit about this in my class today because somebody brought up, well, some people say that the Sabbath is on Saturday and that if we don't worship on Saturday, then we're going to hell. And I'm like, well, that's a misinterpretation of Scripture. Jews held it on Saturday. We hold it on Sunday. And the reason we hold the Sabbath on Sunday technically our church services and day off from work is because Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week. And so from the very onset of the early church, they celebrated on the morning of the 
day of the week that Jesus rose from the grave. And that became such an ingrained part of the early church and the early believer's life to celebrate on Sunday morning, which is the day the believers in Christ went to the tomb and found it empty. The day that they saw the risen Christ. It was a day of celebration, a day of worship unto their Lord. But then Paul tells us in Corinthians, in one of his letters, that it doesn't matter what day if somebody thinks this day is more important than this day or somebody thinks this day is more important than this day for worship, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the day you worship is basically what he's saying. Take a day of rest on Monday. If that's, if that's what you want to do, fantastic. And, and it harkens back to the words of Christ in the Gospels. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Basically, we weren't made to just jump through the hoops to do something on a specific day. The Sabbath was made for us so that we could actually find rest from our work and to focus on the one who created us in the first place. And so, I say all of that for this purpose. God's presence isn't only on one day a week. God's presence is at all times and at all places. And we honor him with the lives we live, not only in the public, I would say especially in the private. Because it's what we do in the private that truly reflects the nature of our heart. We call that integrity. Have you heard um, of integrity as what you do behind closed doors when nobody else is watching? Are you two different people or are you the same behind the scenes as you are in front of the scenes. And you say, well, I'm the same behind the scenes as in front of the scenes. I just tell it like it is. I'm a steamroller, baby. You know those people, right? I just tell it, I'm gonna lay you out in the name of Jesus. I grew up with people like that. I'm from the South. From Kentucky, we had holy rollers and steamrollers and roller rollers. We had a lot of rollers. And they would just tell you like it is and not refrain from anything. And hear me out. If a believer in Christ, proclaimed believer in Christ, comes to you and they bowl you over and beat you over the head with Scripture, I would question whether or not that person was from the Lord. There are a lot of biblical scholars. Do you see my fingers? quote, unquote, biblical scholars who wield the Bible as a weapon when it should be utilized as a tool of life-giving opportunity. This doesn't mean there aren't rights and wrongs, there are not black and whites, because there are. But if somebody is coming to you on a black and white issue and they're driving you into the ground that's not a message from God. But I will tell you what is a message from God. is a loving, gentle believer in Christ who comes and rebukes you gently by speaking the truth in love and showing the presence of God on them through the way they're treating you in love. And love isn't only saying what you want to hear. True love is telling you the truth, even if it hurts, but saying it in such a way that it brings a person into the presence of God and doesn't push them away. 
Does that make sense? Now, you can't control how somebody receives a message. I've said messages to people and had hard conversations with people where I was addressing sin in their lives, and I would be open to that as well. It's hard to hear where you've stepped off or where somebody's like calling into question your behavior or an action or something you've said or done. But if you're open and receptive to it, it can truly change your heart and your life if you're willing to be teachable. Okay? But the one who comes in the name of the Lord beating you over the head is probably not coming in the true presence of the one who sends people. Now, you have prophets in the Old Testament. Well, Brandon, there are prophets in the Old Testament, and their message was harsh. Their message was harsh, but if you're only reading a piece of their message, <clears throat> you're missing the whole. <clears throat> because speaking on behalf of God, they are speaking the words of God to the people as a warning. <clears throat> if they continue in a pattern of behavior, it's going to end in destruction. And yes, their words are very hard to hear. But in the same token, if you continue to read, you'll see the message from God through them that he still loves them and cares for them and wants what's best for them. And these warnings and rebukes are not to hurt them or harm them, but to bring them to a place of safety. This is why we have so many false teachings in the church is because people aren't willing to do their due diligence and read beyond certain verses. Again, I, let me just say this one more time. <clears throat> Sarah Lee and I, my wife, who was standing up here singing a moment ago, she, she and I dated back in the day, like 40 years ago. I'm just kidding. It wasn't that long. It, no, it doesn't even feel that long. It was just like yesterday. But, <clears throat> but, we, <clears throat> but we wrote letters and stuff because email was just breaking onto the scene and it was clunky and not really easy to use and you didn't have ac access to all that back in the late 90s when we were dating and and uh and so we did what was called snail mail for those of you that aren't aware of that that's where you get a pen or a pencil and a piece of paper that had lines on it back in the day and you would write your thoughts and emotions on paper to give a message and you typically would fold it into the size of what a, a, a little thing we call an envelope I'm really being patronizing right now. Please forgive me. But that's how we communicated. Guess what? When I received a letter from Sarah Lee, do you think I would start in the middle? I'm just going to pick up in paragraph two, sentence number three. And then I would read that one sentence in paragraph two, and I'd be like, whoo! that's enough for the day. Boy, that'll keep me going. And I folded it up, put it back in the envelope. Is that, you, you think that I read the letter? Like, I mean, she's somebody I loved and still do. Sorry, I said it past tense. <laughs> I love you so much. But those are letters we keep too. When, when I would get a letter from her, I would rip it open. Actually, no, because I'm a little OCD. I would slice it open so there were no jagged edges. And I would pull it out and gently open it up. And they would read every word start to finish. And guess what? I wouldn't put it away. I would I'd smell it. Again, OCD. And because uh, and, I wanted to see, was there any, was her smell on there? 
and then I'd read it again. And then I would read certain parts again that maybe were more pertinent to our connection together. And, but we address the Bible this way. Turn to chapter 4, verse 3, and then we make a message out of it. And oftentimes we make a mess out of it. When we should be reading the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible, well, not nothing but, we have other resources, but you get what I'm saying? It, it needs to be more than chapter and verse. It needs to be book by book. I guarantee you, if you read the Bible book by book, you're going to find that a lot of people who are teaching on the radio or on TV or even in several churches, and I'm not condemning any one church, <clears throat> you're going to be able to weed out those that are truly taking the Word of God in context and giving it for what it's meant to be read as. If I read Sarah Lee's letter, chapter 2, um, chapter 2, verse, or, or letter, or sentence 3, and I, I just left it at that, I could really miss out. I really could. I could misread something. I might read something out of context that was actually meant in an encouraging way, but comes, comes across discouraging. Does this make sense? Okay, all right. I digress. God has given us freedom, but the freedom is not to be used selfishly. And the freedom we've been given is to be used for his glory, which in turn works to our best interest. Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes this. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to, to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this command, love your neighbor as yourself. Where have we heard that before? Well, it's in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, and it's also in the New Testament Gospels where Jesus says the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hang on those two, he says. Love your neighbor as yourself, he says. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, do you hear that? If you're always biting and devouring, who is he writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians. Wow, the church bit and devoured people in Paul's day, in the first century. I don't think we can take comfort in that, but it doesn't sound like a whole lot's changed, does it? If you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out! Exclamation point. Beware of destroying one another. Just what I was talking about a moment ago. And likewise, consider Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Okay, you have freedom. You can do whatever you want. Even though there are laws in the land that say this is what's going to happen if you do this thing. You still have the freedom to do it, but you shouldn't. I think our legal system would be so much better off if people would take godly advice from Scripture to say, yeah, you're free to go murder somebody. You're free to go have an adulterous affair, but don't do it. Don't use your freedom in a selfish way to do things you shouldn't do. It could change a society, I think. Within the body of Christ is the freedom of movement and behavior with the caveat that our lives are not our own, they belong to God. And with this in mind, we would, um, then we would 
um, never be worried about what God sees. God sees everything. His presence is all pervasive. He's always there. But if we were not using our freedoms to do things that we selfishly want to do, it wouldn't matter. We wouldn't worry. We wouldn't be racked with guilt on the things we do when nobody else is watching because we wouldn't be doing the things that we shouldn't do when no one else is watching. Does this make sense? Okay, we, this is something we preach to our kids, but we rarely preach to ourselves. Second thing is the cloud of fire tested their continued dependence on God. I love this. Sorry, I keep coming unclipped in the back. And I, again, OCD. Um, this cloud of presence tested their dependence. I told you just a moment ago, I hate waking up in the middle of the night, but I'm getting older. And men, you know what I'm talking about. Trips to the bathroom. All right? Not that you need to know that about your pastor. It's just a reality of getting older. But... I hate getting up because then I've got to settle back in and because I don't go to sleep easily, I'm now tossing and turning for half an hour, 45 minutes, sometimes an hour to get back to sleep. I don't like being waking up in the middle of the night, especially when you have an 11-year-old that'll come by your bedside and say, Dad, right in your face and freak you out because you think you're having a dream, but it's a reality. Your child has woken and needs your help. Or they're sleepwalking and talking, and uh, it's a whole different sermon for a different time. They could break in the middle of the night. They could be somewhere for two days. They could be somewhere for a month. They could be somewhere for a handful of months. And their dependence on God was to be where he was at all times. Do you remember earlier I said it doesn't mean they didn't complain or grovel or get frustrated about it? I'm sure they did. I'm like, seriously, he's moving again? I mean, I, I'm just being all human here. If I'm being honest, there would be times that I'd be like, okay, we're settled in. This is good. I actually like this new region of the wilderness. The sights are pretty. And then the very next day it moves, you're like, come on! Are you serious? But they would get up and they would move and camp somewhere else. See, I don't think God toys with us. I don't think we worship a God who's like, oh, I'm going to try this. Oh, and then I'm going to try that. Oh, and then I'm going to do this. I don't think he's sadistic or mean or hateful, but I do believe there are times he, try, uh, he, he tests our obedience. To, like, like sometimes we test our children. Are they going to follow through on this commitment they've made? Are they going to do this thing that I've taught them already to do? Are they going to be obedient when I call on them at a moment's notice to do? Or are they going to kick and scream and fuss, but in the end do it? See, I think there's a lot we can learn about God through the way we as parents, parent our children, son, take out the garbage, right? Son, go make your bed. Daughter, I don't ever call my daughter's daughter. I call my son, son. I don't know why that is, but... Honey, I say to my girls, can you wash the dishes? Can you go take out the trash? Can you do these things? And do you want, you want to know one of the common responses I get? Yes, Father, I'll definitely do that right away. <laughs> yes, we have a perfect home with perfect children. And that's a lie straight from the pit. No, really, it's usually like, no, why do I always have to do everything, which has become one of my common responses back to them. 
Like, Dad, would you get me a glass of water? Can you pick, get me a, a drink? Can you? But why? <laughs> but eventually they do it, right? These are the Israelites in the wilderness, and this is God testing their dependence on him. I brought you into the world. I could take you. No, he didn't say that, but he technically really could. <laughs> Professor Brown writes these words. There were days when, the, when they could see that they were making progress as a people in the wilderness. But at other times, they may have been puzzled because there was nothing happening. Do you ever feel like that with God? Now listen. Why the tiresome delay, some of them might have asked. For most of us, at some time or another, life has been bewildering waiting. The evidence of God's continued care appears limited in our lives. And sometimes even absent. The Puritans of the early American history spoke about what is called the soul's winter times, or St. John of the Cross coined it the dark night of the soul. When everything appears cold, bleak, and barren, we wish God would speak to us more clearly about why we're going through these dark times when it's so hard to hold on even another second. But waiting times are not wasted times. That's worth writing in your notes. Waiting times are not wasted times. When the guidance we look for is just not there, we must calmly renew our confidence in God. There is some wise purpose in life's bleak experiences. God is still present in the desolate years of the late 17th century persecution. A man by the name of John Flavel urged his contemporaries to exercise the faith of adherence even when you have lost the faith of evidence. Let me say that again. He quotes, quoted from him. Exercise the faith of adherence even when you've lost the faith of evidence. Because you don't feel God does not mean God is not near. Even when you walk through the valley of death's dark shadow, you can fear no evil because God is with you. And following God requires trust. I told this in my class today. You probably get sick of hearing me say this because I say this over and over. I've never heard the audible voice of God, but I have had impressions on the mind so strong they could have been a voice louder than an audible one. That when I've come to dark moments in life, when I've come to difficulties, when I've come to these what we call desert experiences in my faith walk, when everything seems to be against me and everyone seems to be against me and I feel alone and lost, and I'm crying out to God, don't you hear me? Don't you see my plight? Don't you understand what's happening right now? And don't you even care? I hear that voice that says, when I'm willing to hear it, do you trust me? And I have one of two responses. I could say, no, I don't. And the sad reality is that many people don't. 
But I've been a faith follower of Christ Jesus for many, many years now, and I've seen him come through rarely early, never late, but always on time. Not in my timing, but always at the right time. I've seen him do that enough to be able to stand and affirm to him in those moments of desert experience, in those dark nights of the soul, to say, yes, I trust you. And that's where we all have to come to the place of, even when we don't feel it. Lastly, the cloud uh, or the fire required their obedience to God. The Israelites stayed put when the cloud of fire of God's glory moved. If, if, if they had stayed put when it moved, guess what they would have done? They would have forfeited God's protection and security. Okay, <clears throat> imagine, a, a lot of times uh, the wilderness was called the desert. If you go to that region today, not much has changed in 2,000 years. The region they're talking about is the south eastern region and the southern region just south of what would be considered modern day um, uh, Israel. Okay, And if you look in that region, even on a, a Google map, if you look at the actual satellite version, it's brown. What does brown indicate on the map? Leaving a light brown. More deserty, scrub brush land, not great for farming. So you've got a million and a half and two million people in the desert camping out. And it's in the book of Numbers where we get this thing called manna coming down from heaven. And it rests like dew on the ground. And every morning as the dew dries, there's this leftover stuff that is almost like a f like flour or something. That's kind of what it is explained as. And it says it was sweet to taste, and it had all the nourishment they needed. God provided that in the wilderness when there were no crops could grow. And, and usually in the wilderness or the desert, you don't have much, uh, what do we call it, H2O. And you see in the book of Numbers times and times again where God would provide them water in the wilderness, an oasis, if you will, that wasn't a mirage, but was the actual thing. And we see him providing water from rocks. How can water come from a rock? Not out of rocks in the ground, but a rock. You, there's a time where Moses is, is told to go speak to a rock as he's having this intimate moment with God because the people are groveling and complaining. We're so thirsty. You've led us out here to kill us, Moses. And he consults with God. I'm tired of these complaining people. Can you do something about it? And God says, yeah, go speak to this rock and it will give water. And so Moses is ticked off by this point anyway. And, you know, we have Moses' staff or Aaron's rod. It's the staff that budded almonds and blah, blah, blah. You can read about that in Exodus and all that jazz. But um, he's got this staff, and Moses goes over, you stubborn people! You're putting God to the test. I mean, this is when Moses loses it. Isn't it funny? God's like, I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Moses is like, oh, please, no, 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 be patient. And then later on, God's like, yeah, get, we'll give them water. You go speak to the rock. And he's like, no, kill them all. You know? And he takes this rod, this staff that he has, and he walks over to this. I'm, I'm just, 
imagining he's walking over, strutting his stick. He's angry. And he, instead of speaking to the rock, what does he do? He takes his best wind up and he whacks the sucker. And because God is still so good, water comes forth from the rock, but there's a punishment given to Moses. You'll never enter the land that I promised to give my people because you disobeyed me. Even God's most holy suffer consequences when they don't obey God. Obedience. It tested their obedience to God. Our worship team's going to come forward today to close this out, and I want to close with this. There was a guy by the name of Eli Black, and some of you may have heard of him, some of you may not have, but he was a brilliant businessman back in the day. He was best known for two events in his life. He masterminded a multi-million dollar takeover of the United Fruit Conglomerate. Yes, I learned this. That was pretty interesting. And he jumped to his death from the 42nd floor of the Pan Am building in New York City. Those are the two things he's known for. What a thing to be known for. But listen to this. In the book entitled An American Company, an executive described a business lunch that he had with Eli Black. When the waitress brought a plate of cheese and crackers as an appetizer to the table, Black reached out and took them and placed them on the table right in front of him and he blocked them with his arms and he continued to talking to this executive. Do you see what he just did? He grabbed the plate and he brought it in and he put his hands around it like this. But he continued talking as if nothing was weird. About, was that me? Oh, praise the Lord. Uh, but he started talking and he just continued to talk as if nothing was odd about this scenario. Well, what's interesting is the executive hadn't eaten for hours and he hinted that he would like, hey, do you, do you mind if I could have a cracker? And Black acted as if he didn't hear him, and he just went on talking about business. After a while, Eli Black placed a cracker and cheese on the tips of his fingers, and he continued to talk. Several moments later, Black placed the cracker on the executive's plate, but then he blocked the rest as he had before. It was clear that Eli Black was in charge, manipulating others as he pleased. When you play follow the leader, check to see who is at the head of the line. Eli Black, for all of his power, ended up in suicide, jumping from the Pan Am building in New York City from the 42nd floor. Jesus Christ, however, in all of his humility, ended up the Savior of the world, though he died on a cross. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church at Corinth in Greece, talked about the Israelites' wilderness wanderings as a warning to the believers in the first century church. I want you to listen to what he wrote. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors, ancestors, ancestors in the wilderness long ago. See, all of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea onto dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank from the same spiritual water, so to speak. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. 
Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered all throughout the wilderness. These things happen as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. Remember the golden calf? And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test, he writes, as some of them did when they died from snake bites. It's another story in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the angel of death. See, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. And if Paul and the church at Corinth lived at the end of the age, where do we live now 2,000 years later? If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall, he says. The temptations in your life are no different from what others have experienced. And God is faithful, he says. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So again, I'm going to ask you, who are you following today? And if you say, I'm not a follower, I'm a leader, you can't lead without following. You're following somebody or something, and where is that somebody or something leading you? Is that somebody or something you're following trustworthy? Do they have your best interest at heart, truly? Maybe it's time to take a life reevaluation. Are you headed in a good direction or a bad? And the only way to really know that is to know what the commands of God are and the teachings of Christ. Because Christ, do you remember what he said to the disciples the night before he was arrested? In that upper room in Jerusalem, celebrating the Last Supper, he tells them, I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life. No one can come to the Father except by me or through me. If he is the way, he is the one we are to follow because he knows the answers. He is the truth and the life. Our altars are always open. Uh, they're one, one of the things, as long as I'm your pastor, we'll never get rid of because I believe in prayer. If you come to my right, there's an altar here, there's steps over here. You're basically indicating, I would like somebody to come pray with me. I don't want to do this alone. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how. Maybe you've prayed about something for years and years and, and it's still not happening. And you're like, I just need somebody to walk with me through this a little bit to maybe give me wise counsel and to pray with me. You come to my right, your left. If you just want to be left alone and you want to come pray alone, nobody's going to bother you. You come to my left, your right, stairs or the altars over here by the organ. You Please come up and do that. Again, I ask as I ask every week, don't leave this place without allowing God's word to have affected you in some positive way to make you take that next step in intimacy with him. Okay? Father, in this place where we have gathered, we know you are present because at least two or more of us have gathered in your name.
And you've promised to be in a place like that. And so we honor your presence today, not by just our presence, but by our open hearts and our willingness to follow you. And so I ask today, in our openness and our willingness to follow, that you would show us the next step, each and every one of us. Yes, show us the next step as a church, a corporate body of Christ in this place, in this community for this time. But show each and every individual in this place the next step. Help them to be willing and obedient to move when you move and to stay put when you stay put. And we'll always give you the praise, glory, and honor for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.